Welcome to Off Message. I'm Isaac Dover. Part of the argument that is being put out here about about Dr. Ford's account is that doing it at this time mm-hmm. is suspicious. Frankly, all of that plays into some kind of a scenario that this is a political ploy when what it is is a person who's come forward with very serious allegations. And what's left for us to do is what the heck are we going to do about it? Are we going to just dismiss it? Are we going to pay attention to it? You know, we're, the, the thing about the Me Too movement is that, that unlike the environment in which Anita Hill found herself, this is a different environment. And people care. Today's guest, Maisie Hirono, senator from Hawaii and a member of the Judiciary Committee, who months ago took a big step by refusing to vote in favor of letting any of President Trump's judges move forward for confirmation. And right now is at the forefront of leading Democrats' efforts on Brett Kavanaugh. You may know her from a speech she gave on the floor of the Senate around the Obamacare repeal vote last summer, talking about her own kidney cancer diagnosis and saying she wanted to see the same compassion her colleagues expressed to her be expressed in their votes on health care for others. You may know her for being the one who's made it a standard question for everyone who appears before her at a committee hearing, Kavanaugh included, to ask if they've been involved in sexual harassment and misconduct as a legal adult. Well, if you're listening to this, you know about the trouble that the Kavanaugh nomination is in right now because of the incident that a woman alleges to have occurred while they were both in high school. It's a story moving very quickly. So quickly, in fact, that we realized that the interview we recorded just a few days ago on Thursday, when the letter was known about, but the woman was still anonymous, needed some freshening up. So we went back on Monday to her office to record a little more. And what we're going to do is play that latest bit first with her responding to the allegations and giving her sense of what's next, and then go back and play the longer interview from a few days before, which will give you a little more context of who she is and how she comes at all this. And you can read more on all of that in the story up on the Politico website, so please do. And please, make sure you're subscribing. Coming up, for pretty much the total opposite direction on all this, I'll be sitting down with Ken Starr. And of course, email me your thoughts at isaacpolitico.com and follow me on Twitter at Isaac Dover. There's a lot to get to with Maisie Hirono, so let's get right to it. Let's just get right into it. What was your reaction to finding out about this letter? Well, frankly, I was first read the letter uh, last week when the Senate Democrats got together, but I did not have a copy of it, and the allegations were quite specific. And the decision was that the matter should go to the FBI. Mm-hmm. So that was that. But uh, significantly, Dr. Ford has come forward. And I think that if she hadn't come forward, the matter would still be with the FBI. Uh, whatever they were going to do to investigate. But it's come forward, and I think it really changes the dynamics of how we're going to uh, do uh, do this 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 whole decision-making with regard to Brett Kavanaugh. And he, said, he was set to have a vote this Thursday. And once again, I ask, what is the all-fired rush? This newest development, I think, as I say, changes the dynamics, and there are a lot of uh, additional concerns being raised. What, when you were read the letter, did you immediately believe it? It was highly specific uh, and believable. Reading the the um, Washington Post article, though, the, there was an additional thing about she was willing to undergo, uh, what is it, the FBI? The, the, the polygraph, yeah. The, yeah. So uh, hers is a very credible account, and I believe her. What? Do you make of the reaction that you've seen from others on this? 
Senator Cornyn from Texas has said this seems like a last minute unproven allegation. I think it's really unfortunate for anybody to cast this these allegations in that kind of light because it just raises the memory that a lot of us have of, of uh, Anita Hill and how she was treated. So, the, you know, this shows a lack of understanding of how difficult it is to come forward with a story like this and how uh, much courage it, it took for Anita Hill to put herself through that and certainly for Dr. Ford. She wanted all of this to remain confidential. And already uh, we're, we're just a day into this and already people have gone through her totally. uh, teaching reviews, have gone Everything. through uh, her court records, yes. that her family appeared before yes. Judge Kavanaugh's mother. Everything. Her life is an open book. And that's why to simply cast this as some sort of a, a political ploy shows a real lack of un, uh, understanding of the dynamics of this kind of allegation. Should Senator Feinstein have waited this long on the letter? I think she did everything she could to maintain the confidentiality as requested. And even as of last week, when the rest of the Democrats in the committee, I don't think any of us cast aspersions on how she handled it. But at that point, uh, we had, at that point, it was time for the matter to go before the FBI, still maintaining, by the way, her confidentiality. What I was told by that meeting with the of the Democrats on the committee was that there was some frustration voiced, maybe not by you, and certainly some frustration felt about Senator Feinstein not moving forward with this more quickly, which is interesting because part of the argument that is being put out here about about Dr. Ford's account is that doing it at this time mm-hmm. is suspicious. So there were there were Democrats who last week felt like this should have been done earlier, actually, um, and had expressed that to Senator Feinstein. Frankly, uh, all of that plays into some kind of a scenario that this is a political ploy when what it is is a person who's come forward with very ser- serious allegations. And what's left for us to do is what the heck are we going to do about it? Are we going to just dismiss it? Are we going to pay attention to it? You know, we're, the, the thing about the Me Too movement is that, that uh, unlike the environment in which Anita Hill found herself, th- this is a different environment. And people care about these kinds of behaviors and that there should be consequences or certainly uh, should be brought to light. And, uh, and uh, Judge Kavanaugh has denied it, and he has a lawyer. Your question to him in the committee was... As a legal adult, mm-hmm. have you ever engaged in sexual misconduct? This is something that is alleged to have happened when he was 17, mm-hmm. so he was not a legal adult. Does that change the nature of the answer to Well, you? 17 is not exactly a baby either. So these are serious allegations, and uh, uh, she uh, has a very credible story. And as I said, I believe her and we now have to uh, do more than simply saying, well, look at the timing and well, it's just all political motivated. No, this has to be taken seriously. I asked the question based on them being a uh, legal adult and I will continue to ask my question in that way because uh, generally juvenile records are confidential. Mm -hmm. But do you think that he lied to the committee then? Couldn't he? He he says this didn't happen, but even if you accept that it did happen, his answers he his answer to you was as a legal adult now uh, there'd be nothing. Well, certainly, if it can be shown that he lied, that's a, that's even more troubling. 
So uh, often in these cases, uh, it does become uh, he said, she said, but it, it's too often he said, she said, and that therefore victims hardly ever, ever come forward because they know that uh, you know, not only will, not they, will they not be listened to, but they, they won't be believed. You, and that's that, nothing new in the dynamics of this kind of behavior, by the way, and the, the victims who uh, experience this kind of behavior. You would not have anticipated, again, he says this didn't happen, but if if he thought it did, uh, if you had said as a legal adult, if you part- participated in sexual misconduct, if he had said, well, not as a legal adult, but as a 17-year-old, like, he wouldn't have offered that information up of to you. Of course not. Right. Of course not. And if, uh, even if, as an adult, if, uh, do you think any of them would actually say, oh, I did it? If they engage in this kind of behavior and they lie, they have to uh, hope that nobody ever comes forward. That's one of the reasons that, that I think it's important to ask this kind of question, because sometimes uh, these kinds of defa- behaviors, as you can tell by CBS and all kinds of people, they, they have been engaging in this kind of behavior for, for decades, for a while, and people will come forward in this environment. Do you? What does it make you think about the rest of the testimony that he gave before the committee? One of the other aspects uh, has to do with this gag list that mm-hmm. uh, Judge uh, Kozinski had. He said he couldn't remember whether he was on this gag list or not. And uh, and this is this is a judge who had to resign from the bench yeah, because, so he of because of many incidents of misconduct. Well, 15, I believe, uh, yeah. at, at some point, 15 women came forward. And over 30-year period, he had engaged in various sexual uh, harassment and uh, assault right. and behavior. And Judge Kavanaugh said in all the time that he knew him, which was uh, over decades, he heard nothing, saw nothing. And But specifically, though, mm-hmm. this gag... This group, I think that was pretty unbelievable that if he had gotten this kind of very explicit emails from Judge Kozinski that he would not have remembered, but he said he didn't remember. So do you think he lied to the committee? Let's just say I'm going to ask him another question about that. It somewhat uh, stretches credulity, let's put it that way. He said, I don't remember, so, you know, maybe he doesn't remember. But for most people, it would be kind of hard to get pretty explicit, sexually explicit materials, and you wouldn't remember. I think he didn't want to lie about it. So one way you get through that is to say, I don't remember. Do you think he lied about the sexual misconduct? You believe the woman. Do you think he was lying in his testimony? The the question you asked him was as a legal adult. Again, like that, you believe... Well, I have no basis to think that he was lying when he responded to my question, that as a legal adult. What do you make of the letter of all the people, all those women that uh, went to high school with him, knew, or they didn't go with him, they knew him in high school, 65 women who vouched for his character that came out as soon as uh, it was it became public that this letter was there? I think we probably need to question 65 people, how well did they know him? I understand you, one of them was only in fourth grade. Do you want to time. call 65 women before Well, some people are going to. I think that their, their efforts be made. I believe that, what is it, the Washington Post, somebody. Politico. Uh, Politico, whatever. <laughs> yeah, I think it would be kind of interesting to find out because. And Politico called the 65 women and so far two have responded and say they stand by it. Oh, but good the rest for them. Of them. <laughs> I think it bears 
follow up, let's put it that way. So right now, do you think he should, you weren't going to vote for him to be on the court anyway? I have plenty of reasons to be against his nomination and his confirmation. Plenty of reasons based on the patterns that I, uh, I identify, how he views, well, reproductive choice for women. That's very clear to me where he stands on environmental laws and definitely with regard to indigenous peoples. Yeah. And the fact that uh, there, there may be some effort to, to couch you know, how he views indigenous people by saying, well, uh, American Indians and Alaska Natives, you guys don't have to worry. We'll just shove the Native Hawaiians under the bus. We're free. That is not how it should work. Do you think he will be on the court? I don't know. But it's more of a question now than it was last week, Yes, I think it is more of a question. If he's not, is there another Trump nominee that could get through the Senate? There are plenty of people on the Federalist Society and Heritage Foundation list. And what if the Democrats take the Senate in the midterms, which is something you're hoping would happen anyway? Uh, (laughs) I don't think we'd be looking to the Federalist Society and the Heritage Foundation for people that we can support. Let's hope that the process will change to one where there's more of a meeting of the minds and that we could find someone who would garner more than the bare minimum of Republicans uh, supporting this person. It's a lifetime appointment to the Supreme Court. So I hope that that will change, that dynamic will change, and, and we'll all be able to come up with something much more, somebody much more acceptable. You think there's someone that President Donald Trump would nominate that, should there be a Democratic majority in the Senate, could be confirmed? Surely there must be. Well, one of the people who, the, who got on the Ninth Circuit is, uh, is someone that he probably got uh, uh, the fewest number of Republicans voting for him, and it was somebody from Hawaii. That's because he wasn't conservative enough. <laughs> we'll see if President Trump would nominate that person to the Supreme Court. <laughs> I don't think he wants to be, well, I shouldn't say, but, you know, I just think that with all of the good judges that there are out there, that, uh, that I don't mind a judge being conservative, as long as I feel as though they don't have some kind of ideological axe to grind, which Trump appointees have. Well, this would be a Trump appointee, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, but the, the, but uh, the, up to now, but there are there are a lot of conservatives who I think uh, one could conclude that they are, uh, can manage to be fair and apply the law. I just wonder, and, and we can leave it at this. It's possible that the Democrats are going to take the majority in the Senate. It's possible that Brett Kavanaugh's nomination is not going to make it through here. If it doesn't. It seems unlikely that another nominee would be able to be confirmed before the midterms at this point, just given the way the timing is, right? You wouldn't support that kind of a rush on something, right? No, I wouldn't. So do you end up in a space then where if there's a Democratic majority, which there may or may not be, we could potentially have an opening on the Supreme Court that because of gridlock, because of an inability to agree, because of politics on both sides of it, is there for two years. I think we've had those kinds of vacancies before, and and we certainly had uh, over a one-year vacancy with Merrick Garland. Yeah. So the world does not come to an end because we don't fill all of the nominees. But as I said, my hope is that if Kavanaugh does not get confirmed that uh, uh, there will be much more of a meeting of the minds and that uh, we'll be able to get back to a, a, an advice and consent process 
will proceed the way it should, which also means that you're not going to have deemed committee confidential documents so deemed by one person and not even in a bipartisan decided way. So I would like that kind of uh, process to stop. You know, I'd, I'd like things to be a lot more open and uh, uh, more in a bipartisan fashion. All right. Well, we have a lot of question marks that surround all of this. Yes. So stay tuned. We'll, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And here's the longer interview, which we recorded in the same spot in her office a few days before. So why don't we start by talking about uh, pottery? Oh, <laughs> Well, we're starting with something that is very artistic and creative that keeps me on an even keel. Yes, it's one of the things I do. Yeah, the the, the right term is throw pottery, which to me sounds well, like how you the, break no, pottery, right? No, no, right? that's only if you do wheel Okay, throwing. you don't throw? No, I don't do, use a wheel. All of my things are, are hand, hand built. And what are you making? Hand built. Well, I have some things here like that. Yeah. A piece I made hand built. I did those the tray up there. That's called my happy pigs tray, and I did that sort of that figurine thing. So I do a, a number of things. I've um, I, but it's only hand built. I've done wheel throwing, but it drives me crazy. Why? It's it's uh, it requires a lot of patience to get good at it. Mm-hmm. And while I took some lessons, I didn't have enough patience to get good at it. And and also wheel throwing, unless you're really good at it, is too symmetrical for me. Mm-hmm. I like things to be a little askew. <laughs> uh, and then there are the origami cranes too, yes, right? So. You've got all over the office. You know, right? one of the things that happened was because as you probably know, I, I have some health challenges mm-hmm. and a lot of people were saying that uh, you should, you know, that they wish me well. And I thought, here's something that... Uh, People could participate in it. That's more than just your left brain usual stuff. And, and I thought part of my culture, a, a part of my culture is to uh, fold cranes. And when you fold a thousand cranes, the kamisama, the gods will grant you a wish. So I thought that was a really good thing to do. And, and a lot of people got into it. So I've had four-star generals, ambassadors, uh, all kinds of people folding cranes. M- many of them had never done anything like that before. Do you fold other things in cranes? Because I feel like when people talk about origami, <laughs> I, when I was a kid, I learned some stuff in origami beyond cranes, but now all I ever see is people doing cranes. Well, uh, I just fold cranes. And in <laughs> fact, you can do it uh, as a sort of a uh, thing that you do while you're having a meeting. You know, I, I always have origami paper and mm-hmm. my, my whole staff knows how to do it. But I also Is it a do requirement a- for getting hired or? Oh, they, it'd be nice. It doesn't take much to get to the, it's more the sim, symbolism of it, doing something different. And I tell people, look, this is why uh, diversity is important, because if I were not a member of the Senate, nobody would be folding cranes. Yeah. And also on the committee in that hearing, I would be the only one, and I was the only one to ask Kavanaugh about his uh, his views on Native peoples mm-hmm. and Native Hawaiians, I would be the only one who yeah. would pick out that document out of uh, 190,000 committee confidential documents and deem it to be relevant. I think that that's probably fair to say. Yes. Uh, I want to come back to Kavanaugh in a minute. Let's talk about how you got to where you are, but really how you got to America. <laughs> You, on the boat, truly. Do you remember the boat? Oh, of course. It was How President Cleveland. I was almost eight, and I was seasick for much of the time. Um, and, of course, I had never been on a big ship before. We came in steerage. Do you know what steerage is? I do. 
Okay, so that's how I came. First class ticket all the way, right? Oh, yeah, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> and so we literally had just one suitcase. And, and I'm sad that we did not keep that suitcase. My mother used it to store some documents and all that. And, and for some reason, it kind of left our house. But I would have loved to have kept it. But, you know, one of the things that I have on my wall to remind me, of course, as though I need a reminding, but... Uh, you know, where I come from is my naturalization paper mm-hmm. document. It's the only thing that uh, that is legal. I don't have a birth certificate or anything. But coming over here to a new country, it was a culture shock. I had... You didn't speak English? No, no. And you came with your mother and your sister? Right? My mother and my uh, older brother. Other brother. Mm-hmm. So it was a huge... It was a huge change. And my grandmother had been raising me from age three to just before I came. So there were, uh, I, I missed her tremendously. I saw her more than I saw my mother during that period. And, and so I understand things like family separation and what it does mm-hmm. to a family. And we had to leave my younger brother uh, in Japan because he was not old enough to go to school. And my mother would be working all the time and she needed two kids who could go to school. And that must have been tough. Yes, it was very tough for her. And for you also? Well, it was tough for my younger brother. Mm -hmm. The the separation was very hard for him, and we did not know it at the time that it would have that kind of, in my view, lasting um, impact on him. And we're all different, so that's another thing I learned. While I was with my grandmother from age three to just before eight years old, I responded to that separation in a very different way than my younger brother. My younger brother did not deal with it in the way I did. And I think part of it is that I'm very Mm self-sufficient. I don't need a lot of people around me, although I I chose kind of a strange thing to be doing in politics. But nonetheless... uh, uh, it, it, it was hard for my brother, and it had a lasting negative effect on him. And so I understand what uh, separating children from their parents yeah. can mean. You're the only senator who would have naturalization papers of the current Yes, seven. of the current. I'm the only, yes, immigrant serving in the U.S. Senate right now. Do you think other senators, whatever party they're from, whatever background they're from, understand the immigrant experience? I don't think the way I do because um, there's nothing like first-hand experience. Sure. A, a lot of them come from a, an immigrant background, so you would think that they would understand, that the, especially those uh, that are only second-generation, mm-hmm. meaning that they were the first to be born in this country. You would think that they would have more of a recollection. But that is the, the sort of the greatness of this country, that in one generation you can move from being really poor, not speaking the language, to having an education, yeah. and that's why I'm grateful for this country. My life would have been totally I mean, different otherwise. It seems otherwise. like also growing up poor, there are not that many senators who really grew up like very poor. You were very poor. Yes, up. well, we didn't right. have much. My mother right. made all my clothes. I don't remember having a new pair of shoes. I mean, it's not like I'm playing my violin or anything, but no, it's, things, it's the facts of the situation, right? And so my mother, I know, qualified for welfare, but when she went into get welfare, they looked at her and she told me they looked at her like she was dirt and she walked out and said, I will never go there. And they looked at her because she was time. dirt or like she was dirt because she was. She was, she looked. Because she was Japanese? She was poor. Yeah. Well, I assume that in the welfare office, there are a lot of poor people coming in, but And then you have workers who uh, are not particularly empathetic or sympathetic. Mm -hmm. And she, having gone through all that she already did, 
she really got that mm-hmm. <laughs> vibe, and she said, "I'm not going to do this." And I don't fault anyone for receiving yep. welfare. In fact, um, you know, but uh, I always remember my mother saying that to me, and and so my mother was very self-sufficient. She worked really hard, and so that's that was me growing up, and I always felt very different from everybody else, even if I didn't talk about my background, but I felt very different from my classmates. Was it hard to get to talking about your background? To In a way, yes. Uh, um, I mean, uh, you, you seem like a person who's a, somewhat uh, private, somewhat introverted, yes. mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. yet you've been in politics for yes. coming on 40 years now. Yeah. Oh, right? has it been that long? <laughs> <laughs> I thought you. it was only like 30 years, but okay. Yes, well, weren't I've you been, elected in 1980, uh, right? 1980 was yes? my first okay. race, so I've been doing this for quite a while, and I'm uh, grateful for it. But yes, uh, I think that one can be um, in politics and still be quite uh, um, private. And I I don't need a lot of hoopla around me. I go about my business to get what I need to do, and I'm very focused on what I need to do. I have to say that this presidency has given me a lot more opportunities to be vocal and visible, and I think it's important. Now, I wasn't always this way, Isaac, because (laughs) I come from a culture. I don't know. Have you ever been to Hawaii? I have. They're really, I mean, it's wonderful people, and, and I'm really <laughs> glad for a culture that is much more uh, supportive mm-hmm. and kind uh, and all of that. But we're also not a particularly verbal, confrontational culture. So, um, you know, and as an Asian person and as a woman, it's even more so. And as an immigrant. So, you know, I had a lot of reasons for being relatively quiet. Yeah, I was uh, but there. But I had to kind of develop. I covered the, the end of the primaries that uh, your colleague Senator Schatz won mm-hmm. and that uh, when Governor Abercrombie was uh, uh, lost his mm. primary uh, to uh, Governor Gay. Uh, and it was striking how uh, it's a primary, so it's internal to a party, but still it's a different thing, a primary in Hawaii, mm-hmm. an election in Hawaii. It felt like then uh, I came up covering politics in New York where it's a little bit more uh, confrontational. Yes. <laughs> Um, uh-huh. Well, I've always had primary challengers, uh, a very strong primary challengers, and this is the first re-election that I haven't had, or election yeah. I haven't had a primary challenger, and so it's kind of nice. It's only taken me 35 years to get to this point, but I still don't take anything for granted. And you know, my own experience, I hearken to my own experience as a as a sort of guidepost for the, the, what I work on and what I um, uh, focus on. And uh, I also say to a lot of people who think that they can't do a lot of things, you know, most of us uh, have a, a comfort zone that uh, we stay in, but all of us are capable of so much more mm-hmm. in, in my own life. I tell people, you think I just kind of popped out like this? No. Over the years, I've really pushed myself to be expressive. I've, I've always been very focused. I just didn't have to be very noisy about it. And it is not your personality. You're not, right? You, you don't, it seems like despite being a politician, despite being a United States senator, you don't run to the front of the no. crowd. <laughs> you don't say, look and pay no. attention to my story, except now no. you do. I think it makes a difference to people who are struggling on what impels me truly is that I've said to my staff uh, for a long time now that uh, there are people getting screwed in our country every single second minute, hour of the day. And if by our work we can d- decrease that number, we'll make a difference. We'll be doing our jobs. And 
if I didn't have the kind of background that I had with a single mother who was just so focused on what she needed to to do, I would not be sitting here today. If I were a, what I would call a typical middle class kid, mm-hmm. I um, would probably not have protested the Vietnam War. You know, I come from a pretty non-confrontational culture. There weren't that many of my classmates from uh, a big public school protesting the war, but I was one of those people. And it changed how I viewed government and, and it led to my political involvement. So part, a large part of it is taking risks, getting out of yeah. your comfort zone. Do you remember the decision to run for office the first time, oh, given yes. who you are, your personality sure. at that point? Well, by that time, I had been involved in politics, and I had run other right. people's campaigns. Yeah. All guys, by the way. <laughs> and so one of them has decided... And you're running for seat. state assembly, yeah. right, in Hawaii. Yeah. He decided not to run for office, uh, re-election. And he said, yeah, Maisie, you've been t- touting and, and having all of the rest of us running. Why don't you think about running and... And I said, hmm, that's why I also in my own life, I know that women respond to encouragement. Mm -hmm. And it's not as though we just say, hey, I'm just going to force myself on the unsuspecting public now. No, most of us feel like we have to have something more to offer, uh, which is some, which is a a barrier that guys do not face, by the way. Mm -hmm. They think that, as one of my staff members said, guys think they're God's gift too you know, the world or something, and they can just run. But women, as a general proposition, we feel as though we need to prepare ourselves more. So before I ran for office, I had already been politically active for a decade. But it was very different being a candidate and not being a supporter. And saying, vote for me. Yeah, oh, that was a whole... Breakthrough. (laughs) I remember knocking on somebody's door, and I forgot what I was standing there for. (laughs) 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 But I've since overcome that. (laughs) I would imagine you you figured that out in between that and getting elected to the Senate. It felt very weird to be the candidate. Because you had to talk about yourself. Yes, and to go go, go and ask perfect strangers for their votes. Yes. It it feels like then you you talked about these questions uh, some of the questions you asked Judge Kavanaugh, um, and I think part of the reason why we wanted to do this podcast now is because of the role that you've taken on among your colleagues in the Senate, in the committee, um, the way that you think about how you question someone who is going to potentially be on the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. The thing that you had gotten known for was starting to ask everybody who came before you mm-hmm. if they had been involved in any yes. sexual misconduct or mm-hmm. assault. Yes. Or if they'd been disciplined for it. Nobody has ever said yes. No. Do you think any of them were not telling the truth? I don't know. But if any of them did uh, lie and somebody comes forward, then I think uh, they, there will be consequences. Uh, I hope that uh, by asking these questions that it'll have a uh, um, an effect on people's behaviors that I hope it, it has a deterrent effect on people because Why do you this think kind it of will? Be- well because uh, you don't want to be caught lying yeah. under oath and I think that's uh, that's something that they should they now have to think about Do you think that someone who has committed sexual assault if you're the type of person who has is as concerned about lying about committing sexual assault? Well, they can lie, but uh, they better hope that nobody that they did this to will come forward. And we're now in in an environment which is much more conducive to people coming forward. 
And that, that's why the Me Too movement is so important. And, and there's always a backlash and a reaction to that kind of thing. But where I come from is that women have been going through this kind of BS for what I say since time immemorial. I don't want to, this movement to be swept under the, un, under the rug. And it's having an effect, the most recent being the CBS. Uh, CEO, mm-hmm. and uh, and you have the what the person who d- does uh, sixty minutes, right. you know this kind of behavior should not be tolerated. And we're finally at the point where there are consequences. Was it something that you had encountered along the way? Have oh, you ever had an experience? Of like course. This? Every woman I know has had unwanted comments made. It doesn't matter whether you're pretty, ugly, or fat, or what. Unwanted comments are made about our appearance, and sure, I've had overtures. Mm-hmm. And we've had to just kind of ignore a lot of it. And, and so I would say every woman has had some level of, of uh, unwanted attention. Mm-hmm. But for you, it's overtures and comments. That's, that's what you've had to Yeah, I've, no, nobody. Well, I did have a, like a total stranger do a, an, what I would call an assault, and I was so shocked. I didn't even, whoa. So and I know when, it happens. Was it was that? a touching. When, <laughs> oh, when in a happened? stadium. <laughs> in a stadium? Like in Hawaii? Or? Yeah, in Hawaii. I'm just minding my own business, and some guy comes and touches me. Oh, yes. I, I will admit that as a man, that's not something that's happened to me. What, what is that goes through your head at that moment? I was shocked. And then, but he was, he just walked by me and, um, and, and so it happens. I mean, this kind I, of thing. I, when everything started to become more in the forefront on me too, a, a year ago now, I had a conversation with my wife and I said, is this happening to you? Um, and she said, yeah, like on the subway and the mm-hmm. whatever, it'll, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I th- there is a, it seems like a, uh, what had been a, an almost acceptance among women that this was part of the world, not a comfortable, like, mm-hmm. not happy about it, mm-hmm. but no, yeah, this is what happened. And for a lot of men, just an absolute obliviousness. Mm-hmm. Oh, it. yes. <laughs> obliviousness. But I'm hopeful that now with uh, the Me Too and, and uh, people coming forward that uh, you know, th- this kind of behavior thrives in an environment mm-hmm. where there's obliviousness. You don't see anything, hear anything, say nothing. Yeah. And that has to change because it's not just the perpetrator who needs to um, be stopped. It's the people all around who should be noticing certain things happening. And so that's part Did of you the have change. any experiences with it as an elected official? You've been an elected official for a long time. People who knew you were... Oh, yes. Yeah? Oh, but not here. <laughs> not here. But in Hawaii? Yes. People who knew you're uh, an assemblywoman, you're the lieutenant governor... And nonetheless, no, my colleagues would hit on me. So colleagues in the legislature, yes. And what do you do in that circumstance? I ignore it, or sometimes I'll just um, say something so cutting that they never tried anything. Actually, I'm kind of a. I may be quiet. People may think I'm quiet, but I'm very ferocious. Yeah, I scare people. Yeah. I'll I'll just look at them and say, well. Anyway, <laughs> it's enough. It's to hard s- on a podcast it's, to it's capture the look that you just gave them. me. <laughs> you know, it's like don't, you know what, with her. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, no, I was not a pushover. It seems like that's- I remember one time. Okay, I'll tell you a story. One of the really powerful people in the, the in the in the house, and he's since passed, but everyone used to suck up to him, but not me. And he would um, use what we call is, uh, I, and I want to be. I don't want to be. A, racially uh, insensitive or anything, but there's something called the Filipino love call. I don't know what that is. 
you uh, go psst, psst, like that to somebody. Okay. So this person sat behind me, and I'm, this is in the state legislature, I'm sitting there, and he would do this, and I would never respond. And finally, I turned around and I said, I don't respond to that. And he said, what do you respond to? I said, try Maisie. He never did it again. So. Yeah. Stuff like that. <laughs> that seems like it was a bit effective way to shut somebody yes. like that down. Yes. Uh-huh. And it was. Uh, and then the word gets around, I guess. And don't, uh, don't come at Maisie with the. <laughs> well, because I will say something. I, yeah. I, I am not a pushover. Either I'll totally ignore, ignore whatever messages or if they're overt about it i will definitely say something what do you make of what we're we're a year into also when there was a conversation that got started uh in congress because of the members of the house and al franken who uh resigned uh, under pressure uh under all the allegations being made but there has not been uh a bill that has come together from the House and the Senate on uh, sexual harassment. We had uh, Senator Gillibrand on the mm-hmm. podcast in the spring mm-hmm. who was talking about how she thought, okay, it's about to happen. I said, we've heard that before. And she said, no, I think it's really now. We're into September now. Is anything going to happen? I've just uh, recently talked with her about it, and we have not forgotten. Just as uh, the women members on on the Senate Armed Services Committee, we do not forget anybody who comes and testifies before us now, they need to be prepared to respond to the question of, so what's happening with sexual harassment Mm -hmm. and assault in the military? And what's happening with with the retaliation? We know that's still going on. So, you know, other things uh, have come to the fore that we have had to deal with. But I recently talked with Kirsten. I said we do need to change how we um, approach or or, or the kind of environment we create in, in our own in Congress for reporting these kinds of... I mean, it's a year of not moving. So, uh, (laughs) as in anything, you need some spark plugs to move things along. And I will uh, continue to... I'll I'll work with Kirsten because I say we can't let this just fall by the wayside. And we need to uh, confront, in my view, because I I remember when it all was happening and Mitch McConnell says, oh, well, you know, the... And this was, uh, in my view, very sexist. He said the women, something along the lines of the women senators will come up with some changes, appropriate changes. Well, we have come up with some changes. So he needs to face up yeah. to making the, 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 you know, having the bill come to the floor. It's this weird thing where you and Senator Gillibrand and others who uh, you sort of need the women to be pushing on this, but it then this idea that like, well, the women will like, we'll let them deal with that. Like, and is, that it's an issue that it's a women's issue and not an issue for all of Congress. Well, believe me, right? when Mitch McConnell framed it that way, I thought this is part of the problem. But uh, none of us is a shrinking violet. So, no, I don't think that you'd say that about any senator, actually. <laughs> yes, and, and none of the women yeah. who, who get here. Certainly. So we will be, uh, my hope is that we will get that back on track and we will um, move things along. Just as uh, the, uh, Kristen was such a big part of making some changes to the military uh, mm-hmm. uh, justice um, to really push that, and, and she really stayed the course. That's what we need to do. So let's talk about those Kavanaugh hearings. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like your colleagues have approached them in the way that you'd want? Which colleagues? My well, own? Or the Democrats or the Republicans? Because well, let's, they're let's busy. Take them, I guess you see them as separate questions. Do you think that the Republicans have approached them in the way that you'd want? No, of course not. 
What would because, you have wanted? Because they have been very busy trying to deny the the availability of documents that we should get. And for them to say, oh, well, it's, it's millions of documents, that is, uh, that's not relevant. That's not the relevant issue. It's the quantity is not the issue. It's uh, that we should have access to them. As I said, my document that I used was... Uh, among 190,000 pages. And it was an email, and it, yes, it, it was, was an email. you know, it was not something that would have been at the top have, of, uh, uh, nobody no. would have said, oh, well, we have to make sure this document yes. comes through. You found it because you were looking through the documents, well, right? Well, I, I think it was recognized that I would uh, be interested in that, but the, the bigger question is why should that document even have been deemed confidential? Right. So certainly I completely disagree with how the the document question and the, the but they are proceeding and of course we start with uh, the fact that Mitch McConnell wouldn't even uh, give the courtesy of anything to Merrick Garland and uh, so it's not like we have to revisit you know there there are these things about oh but they're still relitigating the the 2016 election oh no just shut up you know we're not doing that. We have a nominee in front of us, and we want to do our jobs and reviewing all the documents that we should have access to. So I very much disagree with the with how the Republicans are going about it. And <clears throat> for my part, I sought to find a pattern uh, to his decisions, and he's uh, written 300 decisions. He's written a lot of really interesting articles <laughs> about his perspective on executive powers. And so I, I wanted to find a pattern, and I did. What's and, the pattern? And the pattern is uh, it, it, on certain issues, on environmental issues, for example, he will narrowly interpret a, a cleaner act, a clean, clean water act, if the litigants, uh, one is a corporation and the other is some, you know, um, public interest group or something like that. And he'll go with uh, the, he will narrowly interpret laws that are meant to protect health, safety, and welfare of our people. So on environmental issues, I think there's recognition that uh, he's on the side of the polluters. Then with regard to reproductive choice, it's very clear. So even if he says uh, that that Roe v. Wade is pretty settled, um, what's going to happen is that he'll be among those that decide all of the state laws that will be enacted. Hundreds have already been enacted that limit a woman's right to choose. So he'll be there uh, to vote uh, for all these limiting laws. And Texas will be probably at the forefront in churning out these kinds of uh, They state have been so far. Yes. That's the, what, what people complain about is the, of the kabuki of these hearings always, right? That he says, well, settle precedent or whatever. But everybody knows that he would not have been... No, that's why right, you... Right? That's like, why. And, and, and whatever you think of the abortion issue, mm-hmm. Brett Kavanaugh knows that he... It, it is he, known about him that yes. he uh, thinks that abortion restrictions uh, should be in place and yes. uh, does not think that Roe v. Wade is where the law should be, right? He would not have gotten to the president's desk. The yeah. president would, have, would not right. have nominated mm-hmm. him. So and, and that's true, by the way. Barack Obama, uh, the reverse was true. Every, whatever mm-hmm. Elena Kagan and Sonia Sotomayor said, everybody knew where they were on that issue. Otherwise, they wouldn't have gotten nominated by Barack Obama. Yes, but that, I, right? I, I'm for people who actually want to expand our protections, individual protections. I'm for people. This is not a, it's like a sort of a equivalency. No, no, no. Here, my, my, it's not an equivalency. It's, this is when when any judge sits before 
the Senate Judiciary Committee on a confirmation hearing like this, and we pretend that they're, they're uh, oh, what's precedent? What's not? We on that issue, their views are known by the people who nominate. Them, yeah. Right? So when they say they're <laughs> going to follow precedent, it's just yeah. totally uh, uh, it, it doesn't even uh, uh, compute with me anymore because they're all primed to say that, and then they get on the especially on the Supreme Court. And I've watched uh, Judge uh, Gorsuch, yep. and one of the first things he did was overturn a forty-one-year-old. Case. So when You're they say those the, things, the, the Janus case. Janus right? case. Yeah. So, you know, all of that is pretty meaningless. So what we are left That's with what I mean. though, it's, it's, is right. what are their writings? Yep. What did they say? I'll look at their blogs and we draw our conclusions based on all of that information because they are primed to tell us very little. Yeah. But yet it is an opportunity for us to raise all of these issues and to, to question them about when you wrote this and all that. We don't expect them to say, Oh, you know, <laughs> sorry. They do. They say what they say, and and that's why we draw our conclu- the conclusions we draw that these are not moderate people. What what end does that accomplish? If 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 you if we're in a situation where it looks like most of the votes in the Senate were basically decided on Brett Kavanaugh mm-hmm. the day that Anthony Kennedy announced mm-hmm. that he was <laughs> resigning, right? Uh, the most Democrats, most Republicans decided, okay, I'm going to vote against him for him. Mm-hmm. And the hearings are full of non-answers from the nominee. What do you really accomplish with what we accomplish is letting the american people know that uh, this is i frame this as part of a concerted effort on the part of the federalist society and the heritage foundation to court to pack our courts and they've been doing this for decades now preparing the way and they now have a willing president who's uh, who's going to pick names off their list so the american public needs to know that court packing is going on i talk about it in that way and that elections matter so uh, a lot of the laws that will protect individual rights, et cetera, will have to come from, at, at this point, uh, from the state level. So it matters who they elect. And I, I hope to enable everybody to connect the dots, mm-hmm. that they better be voting at the state legislative level and the governorships for people who are going to provide the kind of protections that maybe um, they will no longer be able to expect from the Supreme Court. So that's part of it. But also to understand that court packing is going on and that our rights are being uh, subverted uh, big time as far as I'm concerned. And so it's an education awareness responsibility that we have. You were on the issue of the judges for months before Kennedy announced that he was leaving the court, yes. before Kavanaugh was nominated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I asked you how you felt about the, how your colleagues had approached all this. When you you talked about your Republican colleagues, do you think your Democratic colleagues have been on edge about uh, judicial nominations and the way that you'd want them to be enough? I know that I have been talking about court packing for a long time, and all my constituents who come to see me, whether it's a program that supports you know food, whatever it is, I say you know that all of the issues that you care about will be impacted by uh, who, by the courts because a lot of the president's actions will be challenged, or uh, as the case may be, and so it, it all is is connected. So I've been talking about court packing for a long time. I think somebody like like um, uh, Sheldon Whitehouse has also mm-hmm. spent time on the Senator from Rhode Island. Yes. Yeah. On court packing, and so you know, he and I we we, we um, share those kinds of perspectives. Uh, I I think just as it's taken decades for the Federal Society and these really conservative groups uh, that funded, by the way, 
the Janus case mm-hmm. and the predecessor Frederick's case, that they are there to fund these kinds of cases to change the, the uh, as one law professor put it, to change how they view government and the, and the protections that government should afford. So the, these are huge, you know, changes that can occur. And I think it's really important for us to let people know that just as these conservative groups have spent decades, we have to be willing to spend decades thinking about and acting in ways that will prevent more of these people from getting into the pipeline. I mean, it seems like some of your colleagues, some of your Democratic colleagues have been reluctant to uh, blow up the process more along the way here, uh, that there was there was a sense among the Republicans that when they didn't move on Merrick Garland, even though um, I know from conversations I was having with some of them at the time, other journalists were having with other senators, some of them were uncomfortable with what mm-hmm. was going on, but they decided they were going to do it. It was a political play. They hold their noses that, a lot, Yeah, sadly. And then what you've seen among some Democrats is, a, well... Should we get try to get back to sort of a regular order on this? Should we try to restore this? And there is this other tension within the Democratic Party that says, no, the Republicans blew up the process. It's not going to ever be the same. Let's not try to pretend that it is. Uh, and, uh, and and you got to act in that way. You seem to be uh, in the, that latter group that says, no, we're going to fight hard here. Yes, so what do you say to your Democratic colleagues who say, let's this try to get back to This is why I don't bang them over the head about some of the things that I do. As you know, I vote against cloture for all yeah. uh, judicial nominees because I very much object to how the committee is dealing with blue slips and the fact that they're just piling on all of these people, cramming the agenda. So I do that. But I don't expect my other colleagues to to do that. I figure they have to figure it out for themselves. If that's how they want to proceed, then then they should do so. So there are a lot of things where I, I really do respect the individual decisions. Now, I'm an advocate, so I will advocate for particular bills, mm-hmm. et cetera. I, I, you know, will, will do that. But there are certain things that I expect my colleagues to be able to figure it out and act accordingly. Yeah. So there's that. So I am far less reluctant to uh, say what I want to say. <laughs> It's. Uh, I take it you wouldn't agree with uh, President Trump's account of what happened, that there were all these judicial openings because President Obama forgot to nominate people to them. No, oh, uh, please. <laughs> he just lies every single day. Facts do not matter. No, that there, there were a lot of uh, Obama nominees that d- never got the time of day, even the ones that came out of the J- Judiciary Committee. Yeah. So I mean, factually, they, factually, that's not correct. Yeah, I, so, as someone who covered yes. many of those nominations as they were happening, yes. uh, there were a lot of attempts to oh. get people on the court by oh, the yes. Obama White House. Yes. And it didn't work. Yes. Um, that's because we actually abided by the blue slip process and things like right, that. Right. Well, that's the argument, right? Mm-hmm. So forget about the blue slip process. And forget about the blue slip process is the process by which if mm-hmm. a senator, uh, a senator in each state can essentially hold up judicial mm-hmm. nominations for that state. You try, right? you, you try to work which things Which sounds like out. it's it's such an arcane, uh, the dignified rules of the Senate that that can even happen. I think most people don't even know that that's something well, the, that, it, that was the routine. The practical here. effect of, of the blue slip process was to uh, get us to talk to each other mm-hmm. and to try to come up with a candidate that people could support. And but those days are done? Uh, apparently so. 
Justice Roberts, when he was before the committee, famously talked about for his confirmation hearings, talked about being an umpire, calls mm-hmm. balls and strikes. Mm-hmm. With what you've seen, the pattern that you were talking about with uh, Judge Kavanaugh, does he is he an umpire, calls balls and strikes? No, he knows where he needs to be, and he gets there. And what's astounding to me, and I will give the example of the Rice v. Cayetano case because that's one that I'm familiar with since it involved Hawaii. But he he argued in— Cayetano, of course, the governor. Governor. Who, he was at that time the governor. That you did not really get along with when well, you were I got along fine with him, but what the heck. <laughs> I'm still here, you know? So— Anyway, uh, I was. He happens to be the name plaintiff in this case. Yes, I was lieutenant <laughs> governor at that time. But what was astounding to me is that uh, Judge Kavanaugh filed an amicus brief as well as contemporaneously a Wall Street Journal article that was full of uh, of non facts. And I think it's astounding to me that somebody would go before the Supreme Court and and use those kinds of arguments to convince the court. And that's why um, when I attended that hearing, I I mentioned at at the Kavanaugh hearings, I was really surprised that the Supreme Court, so many of the Supreme Court justices kept trying to think of uh, Native Hawaiians as somehow set up as tribes. And I'm thinking, why are they asking all these questions? It has nothing to do with, can they not understand that there are some places that are constituted as monarchies? Hey, Great Britain, king, you know, that's what we had. But uh, I I can see why they might have asked those kind of questions, because guess what? That was what was in the Kavanaugh and brief. And said- then he misstated the, the holding of the court under oath in his hearings. He was that said, a mistake, do you think? Oh, he... he that's, Please, how can you go to the Supreme Court and misstate a holding? That's like first-year law, law school stuff. And he, then he misapplied the holding, misapplied the And law. in that exchange that you had with him, you asked him about what he was thinking with an email. He said to you, I don't know, that email was 15 years ago or whatever. He said. It was I, however many years ago it was, 16 years mm-hmm. ago. Uh, I can't remember what I was thinking at that time. That doesn't do anything I for know you. exactly what he was thinking. He was thinking a certain way about... Uh, uh, Indigenous peoples and Native Hawaiians. And there are still a lot of people who think that way around here, by the way. They think Native Hawaiians, that's just a racial group. So that any, any bill that, that has the words Native Hawaiians is subject to, uh, strict scrutiny and probably unconstitutional. I get that all the time here because we have a lot of, you know, we, we like to reauthorize Native Hawaiian housing, education, healthcare, three really important mm-hmm. bills and, um, there, there are a lot of Republicans, particularly in the House, who think that anything relating to Native Hawaiians is unconstitutional. And you know what? They cite the Rice case. And I say, that is not the case for that proposition. But guess what? Kavanaugh under oath. If, if Judge Kavanaugh becomes so. Justice Kavanaugh, what does that mean? What, what do you think that does? It's not good for indigenous peoples because the, the, there were very well-financed groups that funded the Rice lawsuit. And there was a time when uh, there were a lot of challenges to Native Hawaiian programs, including we have a, a, a school called Kamehameha Schools, and uh, there, there was a challenge to their admission policy. So the, the, there were these outside groups that funded these kinds of challenges. They're still around. And so uh, with a Judge Kavanaugh and his articulated position that these kinds of laws should be strictly scrutinized, and of, of questionable constitutional validity. I, it just invites. That's like a big fat notice. That's what led to the Janus case, where you have Alito 
letting it be known for six years, we really should look at the Abud decision. This is why uh, these plaintiffs were found. Fredericks and Scalia died, so it's four to four. So, so Gorsuch is on the court, and wham, you know, he votes the other way, and 41-year-old uh, president is overturned against unions. All right, so last question. Let's say in the Judiciary Committee, uh, you might have uh, another opening uh, that uh, you guys will consider if there is an opening for Attorney General. Do you think that Jeff Sessions should stay as Attorney General? I did not vote for him. I'm aware. At the same time, the, you know, it matters the, the motives of the president, and the, the motives of the president is to try to uh, interfere with the Mueller investigation. And so um, the, the, uh, the president is going to do whatever he does. I am hardly the person that's going to be protecting Jeff Sessions because he's been doing a lot of things that, that have to do with consent decrees with police departments and, and watching the, 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 you know, voter suppression laws and all that. So, uh, and he's really bad on immigration. So he's totally on the page in terms of separating children and all that. So, but, um, I, I, to the extent that, that, uh, the president is uh, doing this to, to try to stop the Mueller investigation. That's not a very good reason for me, but I'm not going to go down in flames. Yeah, so you, know, you wake up in the morning and you Sessions. get a breaking news alert on your phone that says Jeff Sessions uh, has just been fired by President Trump. I would, I would redouble my efforts to protect the Mueller investigation. Do you think the Senate Judiciary Committee would consider another nominee? I There's some question both, about it, I think it, both right? the chairman and, the, uh, uh, and Lindsey Graham have said as much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is why votes matter. <laughs> Elections matter. <laughs> it does seem like we might know the answer to this question soon after the midterms, depending on how things go, uh, or maybe not depending on how things go. And the president has kind of kicked the ball to there for now. Um, but it's this. It's a very strange thing to think that we all kind of uh, in Washington assume that the attorney general is not long for his post. Or the president will just keep threatening him and making fun of him on Twitter and not actually fire him. At this point, whatever the president does is whatever the president does. Uh, he's unpredictable. He is. Uh, um, he's a well. He only thinks about his self protection every day, all the time, every minute, and that's where he comes from. And the fact that so many Republicans continue to enable him to keep going is uh, astounding to me. And uh, they obviously are not at the point where they're going to say this is not good for our country. But they're not at that point yet. Senator Maisie Hirono, thanks for taking the time. Thank you. So what do you think? Is she right about her approach to Kavanaugh, to what the Judiciary Committee hearings are being used for and should be? Were you surprised to hear her say she'd be ready to hold the Supreme Court seat open for two years if needed? Email me at Isaac at Politico.com and let me know. Thanks to Zach Stanton for producing. Remember to follow me on Twitter at Isaac Dover. And catch you next time on Off Message.